So this is week number 36 in our study of the book of Daniel. We're over in chapter 8, and we last week began to look at the um, interpretation of the vision of the ram and the goat. And this is the vision that Daniel had that then God sends the angel Gabriel to explain to Daniel and to open it up for him so that he might um, understand what was written there. And even though uh, Daniel says, he writes that he desires to understand, and then that Gabriel says, I've come to give you understanding. At the end of it all, Daniel says, I didn't understand, and there was no one to explain it to me. So there, there were things here that Daniel never got a grasp of uh, in his life, because this is a good bit after when he's writing this. This is probably 15, 20 years after he's had this vision, when he finally writes it all down and writes the book, and he still didn't understand it even then. So, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit today. You remember last week we talked about um, the, some of the time frame references that Gabriel gives to Daniel. He says it doesn't pertain to today, really. It pertains to many days in the future. It pertains to the appointed time of the end. And so we'll talk, we'll review that a little bit as we begin to discuss this morning and, um, and exactly what that meant. What would Daniel have understood that to mean? Because Daniel didn't have all the revelation that we have. And yet Gabriel was standing in front of him, talking to him, to give him understanding. So you have to kind of put yourself in Daniel's shoes. And what would Daniel have understood about all these things that were spoken to him? So that's kind of where we left off last week, just uh, looking at what... Gabriel says um, just really the beginning part of what this, um, this vision meant. So today we'll pick up, review a little bit, and then go to the end of the chapter. We should be able to finish this pretty easily today. So I'll begin reading in Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. <clears throat> Daniel eight twenty. there the scripture reads, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between the eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, But he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and the morning which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, but there was none to explain it. So at the end of it all, Daniel still doesn't know what the vision totally means. Now, um, Gabriel is given, uh, called by God to give Daniel the interpretation. Remember that a voice came from between the banks of the Ule and spoke to Daniel and says, go give this man understanding. 
And so this is a conversation that Daniel is having with, uh, with Gabriel. And you remember Daniel fell fast asleep, he says. Uh, he passed out, basically. And so when Gabriel is speaking to him, he says he was on his face, he was passed out. Gabriel touched him and he stood up erect. So we don't know really whether Daniel was conscious or unconscious. But this we do know, that he was able to hear what Gabriel said. And Gabriel was able to communicate with Daniel. So uh, you remember also that uh, Gabriel looks like a man, uh, so that he could have this conversation with Daniel. And we'll see that again in the next chapter, that Gabriel will look like a man, and we'll have another conversation with Daniel. So this is... uh, the way that God desired to communicate with Daniel in this particular vision. So um, we talked about these verses last time. In in verse 20, we're given explicit explanation um, that the the ram is Media and Persia, the joint kingdom of Media and Persia. Um, In verse 21, we're given explicit uh, understanding that the goat represents Alexander the Great and the Greek kingdom. And then in verse 21, we're given explanation that the four horns that arise represent the uh, kingdoms of Alexander the Great after he died. Um, so uh, in 323 B.C., Alexander the Great died and four, really a little bit more than four when it's all said and done, but four of his generals took over um, his kingdom. We've talked about this before, that that would be Cassandra, and Lysimachus and uh, Seleucus and Ptolemy would have been the four kings that are being described here in verse 21. And um, so that's without little debate, not much doubt about that. I mean, um, the only thing that's questioned is when was this actually written? And was it written before these kings or after these kings and we'll talk about that at the end today because that's one of the things as we finish this chapter I want us to review and to see are there legitimate arguments um, for um, this book being written in the 6th century BC and of course there are but I want to review those with you um, you remember um, we, we didn't get into this we've, we've talked about it a little bit in verse 23 where it says, in the latter period of their rule. Whose rule are we talking about here? Yeah, the four kings that are given in verse 21, right? Now, um, Antiochus that we've talked about, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, um, came out of which kingdom of the Greek kingdoms? The Seleucids, right? because they were in control of that area that would have included Babylon, and that was uh, Antiochus' home home place. That's where his palace was. He was in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar um, and used that as his own own palace. And so Antiochus comes up out of the Seleucids, so most of this uh, interpretation that's given is about the Seleucids. So... We, we look back at, um, I want to just go back to this. We've talked about this. but So we're in the latter period of their rule. Um, you know when the Seleucids lost their kingdom? When they were no longer the guys in power? Especially in Babylon? Or even in Judea? 
In Babylon, the Seleucids existed until 53 BC when the Parthians took them over. Okay, the, the Seleucids were Hellenistic, meaning they expanded the Greek culture. Even the Parthians were Hellenistic, and they continued that same culture. They just took Babylon in 53 BC. So when did the, when does uh, uh, Antiochus live? What have we talked about? You know the time frame? Yeah, he, he became king in 175 and then died in 164. So if you go all the way to 53, there's another 100 years of the, um, the kingdom of the Seleucids. And so what do you do with this phrase when it says in the latter period of their rule? Does, does that mean that it has to be at the very end of their rule? No. So think about when did the Seleucids take control? When did Seleucus become a king over um, his empire? 323, right? When, when um, Alexander the Great died. And then they extend all the way down to 53 B.C. So almost 300 years. But we're in 170 and afterwards. So it's definitely in the last half. It's more than 60% of the way through the rule. So when he says it's in the last period, last days of their period, he doesn't mean it's at the very end of the Seleucids, but it's toward the end, okay? Because he doesn't say, if he, if he would have meant it was at the end, like he did with uh, Belshazzar when the Medo-Persians came in, remember, and, and they killed Belshazzar, he'd have said at the very end, but he doesn't say that. And so it's okay for the Seleucid kingdom to go on. Now, if you think about Judea, okay, over where Jerusalem and the surrounding areas were, where the Jews were, after Antiochus died, who took over? The Jews through what's known as the Hasmonean dynasty, right? For about 130, 140 years, when did Rome come in and make Judea a republic of the empire of Rome? It's like 63 B.C., okay? Somewhere in there where the Romans made Judea, that whole area really, um, a Roman province, and it's a republic, and appointed their guy over it, and, and then the history goes on from there. So when it comes to Judea, it was definitely at the end of the Seleucid reign, and when it comes to the Seleucids in general, it's toward the end of their reign. So back where we were talking about last week, when it says, I think this verse reflects back and gives us understanding to what has previously been said when, um, remember uh, in verse 17, where Gabriel comes up and he says, the vision pertains to the time of the end. And then in verse 19, where he says, behold, what I'm telling you, you'll know will occur at the final period of indignation, okay? So, and those terms are eschatological and make us run to the end of the age, and that's what we think about. But we talked about this last week. Daniel did not have the revelation that we have. Matter of fact, this is the first revelation that Daniel would have had of any of this. So, when in Daniel's mind, and when Gabriel says the time of the end, what does it refer to? 
the end of the vision, right? The end of the time of the vision, which would have been the Seleucids. It would have been all the Greeks, really, that um, Rome would ultimately take over. But when he says the time of the end of the indignation, he's talking about the indignation of of the stopping of the sacrifices at the temple. When he talks about the period of the end, he means the period of the end of the vision, not of the end of the age. Okay, and I think this verse says that. Verse 23, I think, says exactly that because he says, in the latter period of their rule, same kind of terminology, and he's talking about the four kings who came to power. So most, you go read most commentaries, most of them today, and they will run to the end of the age with verses 17 and 19. I just think they're mistaken that they, they're, they're reading too much in to what was given to Daniel. Now, is there a double meaning? Is there some understanding of the end of the age in this? Absolutely. But that's not the primary focus of this passage. It's not the primary focus of this vision even. Now, does this vision have foreshadowing of the end of the age? Absolutely. We've talked about that, how the uh, little horn of chapter 8 Um, does many of the things and has many of the characteristics of the little horn of chapter 7, which is at the end of the age. Okay? So, but this one, this is a vision that stands on its own. It has foreshadowing of what comes later, but it's a vision that stands on its own, and the historical record well documents the things that that are given in this chapter. So, go ahead, Tom. I just had a question. The terminology of where they talk about it, where they say the time of the end versus right. the age and stuff, is, is, the, is the translation, if you go back to the original language and stuff, is there a different wording the way they, they do it? Or are they using the same wording that, that would be for the end of the age? And, why, and that's why some commentators would, would still translate at the end of the age. I'll defer to you, John David. Well, he's talking about really 17 and 19. And then let me give you another one. Well, and, and compare that over to, um, wow, now you're going to make me find this. Um, I think it's chapter 12. Hmm. Hold on up. Yeah, in verse 4 of chapter 12, and conceal until the end of time. Different terms. I know they're different terms. So verse 4 is the same as verse 7, is verse 17 of chapter 8, but verse 19 of chapter 8 is actually uses a different term. It's the appointed time of the end as opposed to just eight chains. Yeah, and this appointed time, if I understand correctly, and I'm giving you what I've read about it, the appointed time... Um, is closely associated with the things that happen in the temple. And so it would have been the appointed time of the, of the daily sacrifices, the appointed time of the festivals, all of those things that are Jewish. It's most often associated with those things. And so when you think about that, what Antiochus did was all about the temple and stopping temple worship, like that term, I mean, you hear that term all the time today, right? The temple worship um, especially second temple worship. We'll talk about that in another day. But anyway, that is what Antiochus was all about and stopping that. So I think that's where this appointed time um, comes into association with what Antiochus did. 
It doesn't always speak of the temple worship. It does speak of other periods of time, but that's its most common use is associated with the temple. So here's the way I think about this. When you get over to chapter 12, and he talks about the appointed time of the end, or he talks about the time of the end, it's not in reference to a specific vision. It's in reference to the whole book. And as we'll see in chapter 9, we go to the time of the end. It's very clearly given as the time of the end of the age, when the world no longer exists as we know it today. Okay, that's very clear. So from a book context, the time of the end is that. From a vision context, it can be different. And we're in the vision of Daniel of the ram and the goats. So you have to look at context and and what's been said immediately in front of it and and what's the context of the passage. And we're clearly, this is chapter 8, is the vision of the ram and the goats. So this appointed time, time of the end, I believe, pertains to what what Gabriel's been saying, not to the whole expanse of the human race. Chapter 12 is different because it doesn't talk about a particular vision. It talks about the context of the book. Seal up this, um, this prophecy until the end of the time, the whole book. And the whole book does include the end of the age. So that's the way I think about it. I believe that's probably the best interpretation. You have to think about what Daniel would have thought also. Here he's got Gabriel talking to him about four kings. And he, then he says at the end of their reign. So, I mean, it's pretty clear that Daniel would have understood, oh, we're talking about it at the end of the vision that I just had. So, you could debate that, right? I mean, it's clearly an open issue that, um, that people can talk about. And believe me, most people will say it's the end of the age. There's no question about it. It's definitely that. How could you think it's anything else? That's the way they write it. I just tend to ignore that language and say, what's the context? Go ahead. Berean. Berean. Well, you don't have to be an antagonist to be a Berean, right? Probably don't have to agree with this. Right. Which uh, I want to know why Daniel would use the word Greece. He wouldn't know what that word meant. Look, Daniel doesn't use the word Greece. Gabriel does. Gabriel is the one who says Greece, not Daniel. He's quoting. What was said to him, right? It's in quotation marks. But in the original language, did they really use the word Greece? I don't know the original language, so well, I can't tell you that. But J-A-D-A-S. Right. Which, uh, yeah. uh, if you look at a pretty reliable <coughs> map, right. And you think about Alexander the Great. Did Alexander the Great come from what we call as Greece? No, he came from Macedonia. Yeah, right. Didn't even come from Greece. So, but it, but clearly it's the Greek Empire. Right. Gog, Magog, Right. Right. I don't think so, and that's what we're going to talk about between Daniel and Revelation. But if Yvonne is in Turkey now, then, why wouldn't it be in Turkey when Daniel, who was a contemporary of Ezekiel, 
And that's where Ma- and that's where Ma- was Macedonia, right? That's where. I think it would be. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But all the areas around Turkey. Yeah, yeah. Which you know there was no Turkey then. Right. That's true. It's still the same real estate. Yeah. And 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 the peoples are still the same peoples. And that's why I you know, I don't want to be antagonist. That's we can't we can hardly have a discussion like this without sounding like, well this guy is that's not my intent. No, no, I understand. My intent is to make sure that when we read this, that the end of the time means it does it or does it not mean the end of the time? Does the latter date does it not, or does it mean the latter day? Or Dif- different terms, right? Well, different I terms. Well, here's my point. What's the first understanding, and then what's the second understanding? Because, you know, Old Testament prophecies typically have a short-term fulfillment and then a long-term fulfillment. Very often, double meaning. Yeah, there's, there's, there's Right, but it's foreshadowing. The primary understanding I think Daniel would have had is we're talking about this vision. Right. Now, that'll be different in chapter 9 because the vision is different. Chapter 8, people get on to 14, the Seleucids and Ptolemies. Right. The word Greece. That's the reason. That's not why I go there. I mean, not at all. I look at who controlled Babylon because that's the, that's the key to everything. And that was clearly the Seleucids without any doubt. Even, let's say it's not dual prophecy, it's just a single prophecy about the end times. But, but I, I understand what you're saying, but look at what Gabriel tells him. At the a time of their reign. He says their reign. If you're assuming that the four beasts are the same, or the four, yeah, the four beasts are the same as in chapter 7. If you don't make that assumption... Well, there are no four beasts in chapter 8, right? There's just a ram and a goat. Yeah, with four horns. Yeah. Okay, so look now, that's... That's not four beasts, right? Well, but the four beasts represent the four horns. I don't think so. See, I... I all right, let's, let's, go, let's go this way. Right. The leopard had four heads and four wings on his back. Right. Okay. Now we're saying that our Greece thing, which is Levon, is really the Greece thing. Well, here's what we know. Here's what we know is there was a conspicuous horn that traveled across the whole earth, right? And conquered, meaning conquered most of the earth, and that his kingdom was divided into four kingdoms. Right. Who does that represent in history? Well, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Right. That's my point. <laughs> <laughs> I think eight more than seven. Okay, but that's because Greece is put in, inculcated into the Forget world. about Greece. Think about Babylon. Think about who conquered. And who, who came. Who can. I'm assuming it's prophetic. You're assuming it's historical. No, it was prophetic at the time it was written. 
<laughs> I'm looking at history to interpret what was written clearly. But Greece does not influence me at all. I mean, it really doesn't. I, I think it's pretty clear that the, the goat is Alexander the Great. I think that's pretty clear. And that it's his kingdom that got divided into four. I don't think you'll find many people who debate that. that that's exactly, I, I agree with you. Not many people debate it. I'm just one of those obstinate people. Right, that's fine. That's fine. But you've got to make your argument stand up. Well, it's, it's hard to do a bumper sticker opportunity. Ah, 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 like this. Well, we'll talk elsewhere. We'll talk otherwise then, okay? Can we take this offline? Yeah, let's do. You and I, and I'm always open. I, and I, hey, listen, most teachers struggle when we have this kind of conversation, right? I don't. It really doesn't bother me. I'm okay for you to hear other ideas. I'm all right with that because you know what? In the end day, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I really am not. I'm trying to inform and give my perspective of what it says, but I'm not trying to convince you of anything. Not at all. I trust the spirit to do that. Uh, absolutely. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. And, you know, and there, there I mean, it needs to be said because of some Facebook conversation this past week that some of you probably read. It's okay to dialogue and to discuss. Just, just do that and not attack and downgrade and degrade and you know all that crazy stuff that people do and you've got to be out of your mind. Don't go there. Just discuss. Put your points. Defend it with scripture and then let the other guy do the same. But don't, I mean, don't get personal about it and get upset and, uh, you know, fuss and fight and spit and, all, and there's no reason for all that. It really is not. But there's plenty of room in when you're talking about prophetic scripture to talk about it. Okay, I have my perspective. I told you what I'm going to teach, but that doesn't mean you have to believe everything I believe. Now, I think it's I have, you know, what I give you is kind of the overflow of what I've studied. Right? There's a whole bunch more that I don't give you, but that's okay, because what I expect, if interest at that level, is you'll go study for yourself, and then I can't convince you of anything. Your study's going to convince you. So, but I am going to tell you what I think it means. All right? Visual aids. <laughs> Good. Go ahead, Chris. One thing that keeps getting brought up, but I don't think it's actually historically accurate, is people keep saying that Daniel would have had no idea what he was for, but that is not true. The Persians have been at war with Greeks for a long time. They were not a united kingdom, they were a bunch of city states. And Alexander was the first true king of the Greeks because he conquered Greece and then said he was Greek. <laughs> Even though he wasn't. But Daniel absolutely would have known who the Greeks were because the Persians had been warring with them for a long time. And Daniel being high up in the Persian Empire. I mean, second, real, the, the best we can determine is that whoever ruled Babylon, we'll talk about that next week when we talk about Darius, Daniel was his right-hand man. So Daniel definitely in the know about what's going on. I mean, that, Daniel has a privileged position that probably nobody else in his age had. He, he knows more than, he has access to things. We'll see that next week. He had access to the scrolls that nobody else would have had access to. 
and he knows about things. He's in Susa in this vision. Not many, not many Jews traveling to Susa in that day. Yeah. Susa is in Persia for sure. No, well, Babylon is in the Persian Empire, but ruled by a king appointed by Cyrus over Babylon. Well, if you go north, well, yeah, but Persia goes all the way north. Well, I mean, long way north. But yeah. But, well, at this time. It, and that's to be debated, right? Is he in Susa or is his vision in Susa? Yeah, he, he mentions the river, which is in Susa. But right, but it's in his vision, right? So and we could debate that. I have no problem with saying Daniel was probably in Susa, but it doesn't say that. Okay, we'll move on. Verse 24. Okay, in, in the latter period of their rule, whatever that means, right? When the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, a specific king, a person, will arise who is insolent and skilled in intrigue. Now, what is Gabriel doing when he's talking to Daniel? What's he doing? What God asked him to do? Explain, give understanding of what the vision means. So when you take this, he's referring back to the vision, right? So all of this, there's a parallel in the vision and then Gabriel explains what the vision really means. So when you have this little horn that comes out of one of the four horns, he's saying this is the guy, right? There is a king who's going to rise and come to power. And that's the same thing that the vision said, right? Out of one of these four, there will come a little horn who will grow exceedingly mighty. And so that's what... Gabriel is talking about is that little horn and so his focus now from here to the end is about this little horn is about this king go ahead well and what does it instead of run its co- run their course ESV says what when it's finished, right, when they're done. So who's in control of uh, Antiochus becoming king, Cyrus becoming king, all the things that happen here? God is, right? So these things are ordained or appointed or scheduled or whatever term you want to use. These things are not coincidences. They're not happening. So I think what it's really saying is when they get to the place in God's time frame, when it's time for it, then it will happen. And this little king will come to power. Because Antiochus, evil, bad guy, no question about it, was established by God in his kingdom. Right? There's no way around that if you go back to chapter 2. All kings are established by God. Doesn't mean God condones them. Doesn't mean God gives them power. Doesn't mean any of that. It just means that they have a kingdom that it was established in the time frame of God as he desired for it to be established. Okay, so it doesn't mean he condones it, doesn't mean he supports it, doesn't mean he gives them power, none of that. I don't think you can go that far, okay, because you'll see kingdoms later in these visions that clearly are satanic, and that's where they get their power from. We'll have to talk about that in just a minute here. 
Um, so there, one individual king will come. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. So there's the phrase, right? If it's not by his own power, then it's external to him, right? So whose power is it? Who else could it be? There's at least three possibilities here. Okay, and you've said two of them. Could be God's power. Could be Satan's power. Or it could be Alexander's power. Right? Because he's the one that's conquered and gave them the authority over this area. Remember, on his deathbed, Alexander calls his generals together and divides his kingdom. So he really got his power the first king called Seleucus, and then you go on down, and this is the eighth king now, Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes is the eighth king of um, the Seleucians, uh, and so they really got their power from um, Alexander the Great. It's where they really got it from. So all three of those, I think, are valid possibilities. So which one's right? I have no idea, right? This we know. And see, this is different than Alexander. Where did Alexander get his power from? Well, he was appointed by God, no question, to be the guy. But Alexander, basically from the bootstraps, right? He didn't inherit anybody's kingdom. He took over kingdoms. That's not what this guy did. He inherited a kingdom. And so not by his own power. He's not the one that created this situation, I think, is really all it's saying. You don't have to go satanic and say, well, he was clearly empowered by Satan. You, I, I don't, you, you can't pull that out of the passage. Okay? Now, he's an evil guy, but all people apart from the grace of God are evil people. Right? And we'll all go to the, to the lowest level apart from the grace of God. So you can't say that even, I don't think. I don't think you can read anything into this and say he's clearly satanic power. Now, you talk about the end of the age and the foreshadowing, things change because we're given explicit explanation. Why can't you say he's clearly satanic? There are only two authorities on the earth. It's either God-granted authority or it's issue. It may be in different forms and degrees. Yeah, I don't think you can say he's indwelt by a demon and all of that that people go to. The good and the evil, right? No, there's not. No, I agree with that. If it's not godly, it's satanic. Right? And I have no problem with that. That doesn't mean Satan gave him special powers to go out and conquer and do evil and put it in his mind that he should kill the Jews. I, you, I don't think you can go there. People do. Believe me, most people do. You, I, don't, I don't think you can go there. So it, it just means what it says, is that he did not create his own power. Okay? So he came to power um, by, an, by another... Um, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and holy people. That could describe a whole bunch of people, right? So why does it not describe, I mean, there's been people all through the ages, before and after Antiochus. Why doesn't it describe one of them? But, I mean, it could. Why doesn't it? Context, right? Context. What is he talking about? He's talking about the end of their rule, the four kingdoms, right? So you go to context. Otherwise, that could describe a whole bunch of people. 
through, through history. So, and people do that. That's what I'm saying. They, they ignore the context and what Gabriel, what his purpose in talking to Daniel is. And we're given explicitly what that purpose is, is to explain what I just saw. And so the context is, is weighty, is important, and gives us what he's really talking about. So he's talking about a king who came and destroyed mighty men. All right? And, and even that could be other people during the same time period, right? All right? But he keeps going. And um, in the light of what's been given in the vision, who is this guy and what does he do? Just in general. I mean, what are some of the things that he does? As you remember. Just it doesn't have to be not specific, just in general, what does he do? All right, he persecutes the Jews, that's clear. What else does he do? He wants to change the times and the laws, and he in fact does. What else? Or at least arrogant, right? And, and there's more. So when you talk about blasphemy, what do you specifically do? Yeah, we don't get that in this vision, but yeah, he did. What else? That equal, equal I wouldn't go that far, but he takes the place of God, right? Now, and we'll talk about this as we go further. Does um, Antiochus or even the Antichrist ever claim to be God? That's a good question for you to go research. Because does he? Because this we know. Who did, who did uh, Antiochus worship? Zeus. The, the, in the temple... The altar that he sets up is to Zeus. So does Antiochus have a god? Yeah, it's Zeus and the moon god, both of them. Yeah, those two mainly for him. And so how could Antiochus claim to be god when he has a god? So and it never in this passage says that he claims to be god. Never. He opposes the prince of princes, right? So he opposes god. He could take the place of God, and what would that mean? Over the temple and over the people, which it belongs to God, so he usurps God's authority, no question about that. But nowhere in here do I see him ever claim to be God. He speaks against the prince of princes, absolutely. He's arrogant, he puffs himself up, he magnifies himself, but never does he claim to be God here. It's just not there. There are people who say he does, but I don't know where they get that because he opposes the prince of princes. That doesn't mean you claim to be him. Okay, so we know he does all those things. So these descriptions that are given here are talking about that, about the actions of the king who was seen in the vision. That's why he's giving him understanding. So there's this king that's coming that's going to do all these things. All right, when he says... And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. What's it talking about? I mean, did, did we, we didn't see it in the scriptures where he deceived people, right? But we talked about it. So where, where would Antiochus have caused deceit to prosper and to be expanded? 
And it even says shrewdness, right? This, this guy is um, trickery. Yeah, I mean, it would be the word. So where does that fit into the program of Antiochus? Well, when Antiochus first came to Jerusalem, and then later, two years later, when his generals came to Jerusalem, what did they tell the people of Jerusalem? If, if you, well, ultimately, yes. What he told them was, if you do what I tell you to do, then you'll be fine. And so they came in peace and then destroyed the people. And it happened twice. They did it both times, and the people fell for it both times. So, I mean, what, when Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem, how many people did he kill? 40,000. Sold another 40,000 into slavery, all in the expanse of three days. Okay? Then when his generals came two years later to collect the, um, the tax or the honor or the tribute or whatever you want to call it, they did the same thing. They said, as long as you pay us our money, you'll be fine. And then they came in. They not only killed a slew of people, they built a garrison next to the temple and then put armed guards in the garrison so that if anybody tried to go to the temple, they could kill them from the garrison. So, I mean, they, they totally destroyed the people and their form of worship. But both times they said, you'll be fine. We're not going to do anything as long as you do what we tell you to do. Both times they lied. That's the deceit that we're talking about here. That's the trickery. That's the shrewdness. And he didn't do it just to them. He did it to many kingdoms that he went in and conquered. So you, you can go read this in the history books, that this was, his, this was his MO. This is the way he operated. Go ahead. Do you have any uh, comment on that part where it says, I think it's all the same thing. I mean, riddles is used in some, shrewdness is used in others, ambiguous language is used. The, the, double talk. Okay. You never knew what he was saying. He never meant what he said. A yeah. <laughs> you said it, I didn't. <laughs> I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. You know, and... Um, so he will destroy many while they are at ease. That's what I'm talking about. He told them they would be fine, so they relaxed, and then he came in and slaughtered them. Okay? It's just the way he was. And then um, he will even oppose the prince of princes. That's what we're talking about, right? You look back, and all of this refers back to verses 11 and 12, where it says, uh, it, meaning the, the little horn, even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. That's the prince. Most of your translations will say prince. Uh, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him and his place and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. So it's talking about how he opposed God, how he opposed the prince of princes, right? This is how he did it. Not that he claimed to be the prince, but that he took over what was the prince's and then used it for his own purposes. So that's, that's what all this is um, And then verse 12, and on account of transgressions, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. We talked about that, the morning and the the evening and the morning sacrifices um, for 2,300 days will be stopped. 
I'm back in verses 11 and 12, just reviewing what um, the vision actually said about this guy. He'll cause truth to be flung to the ground. That doesn't mean what you think it does. Okay, remember we talked about this. When he throws truth to the ground, what it means is he really takes away um, the diligence of the people to hold to the truth. And most of the Jews, especially those in Jerusalem, succumbed and did exactly what Antiochus told them to do. They began to sacrifice to Zeus. They began to burn incense to him. They didn't care about their daily sacrifices. They never read the Torah. Not so true about people who were removed from Jerusalem. But in Jerusalem, it's definitely true. Because if you did, did not obey him, what did he do? Once a month. He'd sacrifice you on the altar of Zeus built over the altar of God in the temple, right? On the 25th day of every month. That's where the people who had been caught in the last 20, 30 days got killed and sacrificed in honor of Zeus, their God. Go ahead. Okay. Um, uh, when it says um, uh, back in verse uh, 24, uh, you destroy many men and the people who are the saints. So the people who are the saints are the Jewish people. Yeah. Anytime in this passage where it talks about saints, I believe it's talking about the people of God. Doesn't mean they are true believers or any of that. It just means that that's who they're associated with. Mm-hmm. It refers to the Messiah. That's what Daniel's understanding would have been, the coming Messiah. Mm-hmm. Right, who is clearly associated with God, and this is their temple. Go ahead. Right. Right, I mean, without any doubt. And, 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 and then that is the general um, theme of Daniel. I mean, that's what he's trying to convey. Well, remember what, the, what Daniel would have understood is there was a coming prophet who, if you go back to the, um, the Song of Moses and the prophet that they should recognize. So he would have understood it to be a man, you know, I mean, a, a coming person. You know, it doesn't mean he couldn't come as Jesus Christ and be both God and man, but I don't know if he had that understanding. Clearly, this was a man who was closely associated with Yahweh. So the Prince of Princes wasn't necessarily in Daniel's mind God, but was... I don't know. I don't know what, everything that was in Daniel's mind. I know what he says. So, um, then interpret, I mean, in verse 25, if he's taking a stand against the prince of princes, how can he be taking a stand against someone who hasn't come yet? Because the, he's taken over the temple, which is associated with the coming one. Yeah, and it's not so much symbolism, it's reality. Right, I mean, they, the Jews worshipped God in the temple. That's what the sacrifices were all about. Sacrifices all active at this time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, still do some. Go ahead. 
other than Prince of Princes, which is a little bit ambiguous, mm -hmm. there's no other reference to God in this entire chapter. Right. And that's, you think about there's, you know, the book of Esther, they say we don't have any reference to God. It's something that's called a divine passive, where it's emphasizing God at work, even though he's never mentioned. In other words, drawing our attention to him. We've been talking about God every week as we've been in this, and he's never mentioned. He's right. so obvious. Right, right. Right, right. So at the end of verse 25, in that light, when he's broken without human agency, right? Broken without human agency. What does that mean? God didn't need any humans, that's for sure, right? What, how did, how did uh, Antiochus die? What was his state when he died? Well, there's all kinds of speculation, right? But this we know, that he was sorrowful, that he had been defeated and his generals had been defeated, that he tried to go and take money from people in northern Persia and couldn't do so, so he was broke because he had paid all his uh, treasures to the armies to go invade Jerusalem, so he had no money. And basically, it says he died of heartache, sorrow. Now, clearly, that could be associated with disease and all of that. But, and probably, probably insane. Because he's, I mean, he just loses it. And, it. and you don't get that so much from this passage, but go read the Maccabees. Uh, clearly written from a different perspective, written by a Jewish um, person. So clearly going to expand some things. But nevertheless, historical account is that he basically crawled back to Babylon and died. And because he, he was just totally defeated in every way. And, and, and he, you know, there's all kinds of things that people say that he said. That the myth is that he said that he should have never invaded the temple in Jerusalem because that had led to his downfall. And it did. I mean, it clearly did. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and so it is in Maccabees. You take Maccabees for what it is, right? Historical document written by a Jew about the war of the Jews. Or, I mean, it's written, there's other stuff in there. All right, if you, um, so to, to get to the end here, um, when he says, um, the vision of the evenings and mornings, and this is what you have to stand on, which has been told is true. Now, could we match up 2,300 days with any particular historical event? No. You can get close, but you can't get there. You can, if you try and divide it and make it match to any other eschatological time frame, it doesn't work. You, you can't make it fit. So what do you believe about the 2,300 days? What's it say? It's true. It's true. We may not know the event. We don't have to. But what Daniel saw and heard spoken in his vision, Gabriel, sent by God, now confirms to Daniel, this is going to happen. So that's why you can go to where he died or you can go to where they cleanse the temple, either one of those time frames, and back it off 2,300 days, and that's when it started. 
period. Don't know the historical event, but that's when God's time clock started ticking. And you can't prove that. You can't disprove it. I tried. That is what MacArthur says, but that's not why I believe it, right? <laughs> I don't disagree with him. I mean, it's probably when Jason is kicked out of the priesthood is probably when it happens because that priest is, a, is basically appointed. He bought the priesthood from Antiochus and became priest. And probably at that point, true worship began to deviate. So that's probably when it is. And that would match up to 2,300 days. The time frame would. But we can't prove that because we don't have any historical documents that say that. It's, it's kind of, you just have to believe what Gabriel is saying. And I do. Now, the result of this vision is that Daniel's sick, right? On his, on his bed for many days. And then ultimately he gets up and he goes back to his business of being the king's helper, but he does not understand this vision, right? There's nobody to explain it to him. So he knows everything that's been told him, but he doesn't understand it fully. And that's okay. But, and you notice... Uh, go ahead. I was astonished by the vision. Yeah, he was. Right. And you could say that. What was the point of explaining it to him? Well, look at the verse before that, and it says what? It says, the vision is true. Keep the vision secret. means don't go tell anybody about this, for it pertains to many days in the future. Now, many days, if you look at um, when Antioch compared Daniel when he lived, to when Antiochus lived and did all this stuff. It's about 350, 370 years. So that's many days to me. But it also has a foreshadowing of the end of the age, the end of the world as we know it, would be the way I would say it, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. And there you're talking about 2,550 years so far. So that's clearly way out there, if that's what it's foreshadowing. So either way, so why, did, why, why give this vision to Daniel? That's a good question. It's the question I was going to ask you anyway. Why give it to Daniel? Why go into all this detail about the guy who's not at the end of the age? Well, Why? Daniel, no, sorry, no, 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 go ahead. Daniel's character, he was a man whose morality was not impugned by anybody. Right. Through all of his long life and right up to the present day. Mm-hmm. He was also at the highest realm of government of his era. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's true. Preservation of, of his thoughts and you know, don't go spreading it around everybody else so that no one would go speaking through his records trying to destroy anything like that. Okay. Yeah, so, Alright, that that could be one reason to keep it secret, right? Why context. why give so much detail here? Why give this excruciating detail that we're given in this vision? Because authored by the Holy Spirit, it, and, and keeping the 
overall book purpose in mind, if God is in control at the true end of time, it will be very comforting to be able to go back and, and know that before it ever happened, God knew it, controlled it, and called it into being. Okay. How about if you lived in the day of Antiochus? There, well, and you knew it was only going to last for 2,300 days, right? Robert Dig Wilson helps here a lot. Okay, and I've mentioned that name before. He has some books written uh, in the early 1900s. It's when they were published. You can, he has a great explanation of this. Um, Matthias, the son of John, who was the son of a priest, had five sons. One of them was Judas Maccabeus. Matthias, when he was on his deathbed, he recounted the heroes of the faith to his five sons. He appointed Judas Maccabeus to be their general to lead the revolution against Antiochus' forces. On that deathbed, as he was doing that, he mentions Abraham, he mentions Jacob. He ultimately says it this way, the three that were protected from the fiery furnace. And then he says, and Daniel protected in the lion's den. So Matthias, laying on his deathbed, believed what? He believed that Daniel was a book of scripture. Now, Maccabees, which is where this is at, in in 1 Maccabees chapters uh, 1 and 2, is the only Jewish historical document we have of the time of the invasion by Antiochus. So it's the best we've got. So, that being true, that he believed in the fiery furnace, that he believed in Daniel being saved from the lion's den, this will go to next week, must mean that he believes in a guy named Darius also. Because if he believes part of the book, he believes all the book. So that's where we'll come back to this next week. But what possibility is it that a man lying on his deathbed, charging his sons to rebel against Antiochus' forces, is, is referring to a book written during his lifetime by some false imposter who says he was Daniel of the Old Testament? What possibility, what sense does that make? Because these men... Um, ultimately give their lives to do what their dad is telling them to do. So he's going to refer to a book that's been written a few years or even afterwards, many would say, that they should give their lives to defend the honor of God and to fight against Antiochus? That's ludicrous. That makes no sense whatsoever. And so this is the argument that Robert Dick Wilson put against those who said that that the book was written in 2nd century B.C. It makes no sense that men would give their lives and their armies would give their lives to fight against in in the name of a book that was a couple of years old. It it makes no sense whatsoever. Not only that, but by this time, much of the prophecy was history for him. And you could see the authenticity of Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that Matthias believed that the book was inspired by God and referenced true things of the work of God. I don't think there's any doubt about that, that Matthias believed that. 
And he called his sons to give their life based upon that. And they did. And so the thought that this is a forgery written in the... So then the, the critics run and they say, well, maybe some of it was written earlier. You know, just give up. You know, basically. But I'm telling you, the predominant view, the dominating view today is this book was written in the second century B.C. You'll find much more about that than you will about the sixth century B.C. Of the modern scholars, you'll find almost nothing that says it was written in the sixth century B.C., except for crazy people like me who will say, and certainly not a scholar, but that it was written in the sixth century B.C. before all this stuff happened. So that, that, that's an excellent argument of why it could not be written in the second century. Just, I mean, there would be no person who would not understand that argument. So that's the one you ought to use. And it's documented. Go read Maccabees. You only have to read 1 Maccabees chapters 1 and 2, and you got enough to make that argument. So and we'll come back to that next week because now we're going to talk about a guy named Darius the Mede, right? who is not chronicled in any history book anywhere in any century. Not there. But Matthias believed it. So Matthias had more information in 170 B.C. than the scholars today have. And he was apparently known by them. That book that documented that has been lost. Maybe it'll be found one day, maybe it won't. So we'll talk about that next week as we open up chapter 9 with Darius the Mede in the first year of Darius the Mede. Questions? Comments you want to make? Could you just clarify one small detail? If I can. If I think I heard you say this, but I'm not sure. In the latter part of verse 3 where it speaks of one of the horns being longer than the other, did you say that that was the same guy that described in verses 23 and the last the, ho- the horn that's longer, higher, really, is the word, higher than the other, speaks of the Medo-Persians. The higher horn being the Persians, the lower horn being the Medes. I, I don't divide the, the Persian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, by Darius and Cyrus. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't make that distinction. Because there, there really are, they really were, one joined kingdom when they defeated people. You can see that, that Cyrus appointed Darius. That's, yeah, that's where I'm going to go. So that's what we'll talk about next time. Thanks for your time.